Hello and welcome back to the Cool Schools podcast. Now stop me if you've heard this one before. You know, Catholic schools don't serve students with special needs. Private schools, they don't serve students with special needs. If we expand private school choice or if we, we give more opportunities for parents to pick where they want to go uh, to school, students with special needs will not have the same opportunities as, as everybody else. Today on the podcast, we are talking to a school leader from a school that tackles that issue directly. Lanny Davis Frecker is the president of the Julie Billiard Schools. For the longest time in Cleveland, Ohio, it was just the Julie Billiard School, founded in 1954, a Catholic school specifically designed to teach students with special needs. They have recently added an S on to the end to be the Julie Billiard Schools, They have expanded into Akron, Ohio, home of LeBron James, um, and now also a great school for students with special needs. Maybe they'll, it may take them some time to reach the same level of fame uh, as LeBron James has, but I think they're well on their way to that. Um, With plans to expand all across uh, Northeastern Ohio, I think eventually they'd like to end up with something around six schools. So this is a school network that is growing and meeting a really specific need in the community to have students with special needs. We are about to embark upon a wide-ranging conversation where we touch on public policy, we talk about the history, we talk about the the joys and, and the gifts that students with special needs uh, give to the educators that are lucky enough to get a chance to educate them. It's a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed. And so without further ado, this is my conversation with Lanny Davis Frecker of the Julie Billiard Schools. So I think borrowing from the uh, sound of music, you know, we should start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. I'm wondering if you could kind of sketch out the thumbnail history of the Julie Billiard School. Absolutely. So we we have kind of an interesting history. Um, the Sisters of Notre Dame, who have always been our champions and our trailblazers, um, and God love those wonderful women, but they really, in 1954, when, if you really think about at that point in time, what we knew about people with learning differences and people with special needs, um, a lot of them were institutionalized. A lot of them were um, ostracized from the public school. They were, you know, sent home. People didn't think that they could learn. And the sisters did a beautiful thing and basically said, God didn't make a mistake on you. Come to our school. So in 1954, they started in a schoolhouse um, on a separate campus from where we are now. And they started with 14 kids. And at the end of those four years, they had over 40 children that they were serving and all had um, some pretty profound needs at that time. And then we had really outgrown that space. And so um, the school that we have been in now um, was Mr. Arter's mansion. He was an international attorney and he had the, um, he had the mansion and he left it to his sons after he passed. And they, they were uh, philanthropists and didn't really want it to be absorbed by the country club that we actually butt up to. Um, and so kind of how the story goes is that there was a priest in from the diocese who was golfing with the brothers. And um, he mentioned that there's some sisters who need some space um, for a school for kids with special needs. And so there was a transaction of a dollar so that we could buy the property and the sisters moved in. And we have been home there for 60 years um, at our Lynnhurst location. 
Um, so I'm very proud to say that here, 64 years later, we have the exact same mission of serving people who learn differently, um, who have special learning and social needs. But the profile of the child that we have served has changed over time, um, where, you know, in the past, it was much more profoundly handicapped children. Um, and it's always kind of been a response to who was maybe being underserved in the public schools. Sure. So now how many students in total do you serve today? So the the best part about this is that in the fall, we launched a second school. Um, so our, it's our first replicated school. Um, and so now we, we started in the Akron space, which is about 30 to 40 minutes south of where the Lynnhurst School is. So at the Lynnhurst campus, we have 127 kids. And at our Akron school now, we have 18 kids, but we're adding more grades next year, and we will probably be at about 50 enrollment there next year. Um, so currently, we serve 145 kids, all with special learning needs. And what, what grades do you typically serve? So it's a kindergarten through eighth grade model. So now I know um, from speaking with other folks from Catholic schools uh, and as frequent listeners to the podcast will know, uh, I am a, an admitted Catholic school homer. I was both educated by Catholic schools and taught in Catholic schools. Um, and one of the, the constant issues that Catholic schools have dealt with is funding. And this is funding um, just for their normal student population and something they've definitely struggled with is students with special needs. You have a Catholic school that is entirely devoted to serving students with special needs. How, how does the financial model work? <laughs> Great question, because I know that, you know, I always say um, we, we are Catholic, but many of the children that we serve are not Catholic. Um, and we if you look at the root word of Catholic, it means universal. So I like to say that we really are um, out there to help and serve all children and their families um, who who really have special learning needs. And and so what we have done is that we're very blessed to live in Ohio because we have a pretty favorable political environment that has a lot of educational choice options um, for kids with special needs. And so there are two different scholarships, the Ed Choice Scholarship, as well as the John Peterson Scholarship, um, where a parent essentially gives up their free appropriate public education and goes to a certified state provider, and we are that provider. So it, of the two scholarships, both can do anywhere between, um, you know, $10,000 or $27,000, which is the max scholarship, um, which does pay for our services and our tuition. Um, so that is how really our financial model is sustainable and, and we've been able to grow because of it. And so those dollars are a portion based on, is there some sort of formula in the state that determines based on the student's special need, how much money goes with them? Or how, how did they figure out how much of that ten dollars to $27,000 an individual child might get? Yeah, and actually, there's there's even categories as low as like two thousand, and I think that's for speech and language, and and there's different categories and different tiers, but it's all based upon your qualifying disability found in your ETR, your evaluate, evaluative team report, um, and so when there is a recognized disability by the school district, um, then that that has there's a category that then is equated to the services needed for that category. So autism um, has twenty seven thousand dollars associated with that the parent can say, I'm going to give up my free appropriate public education and go to a provider. 
So now where do you find your teachers? I imagine there's a sort of Venn diagram here of, <laughs> of obviously people who are, who are, who are gifted with, with uh, helping students with special needs, but there's also a religious component here and there's, there's now expansion. So how, how, how are you thinking through that? So we are, again, incredibly blessed that we have some wonderful universities around us. We have some wonderful, um, you know, we, we have a very good reputation and a lot. We have not had a really hard time finding people who want to work at our school. I think that in your typical, if, if you're an intervention specialist in the typical public school model, you're going to teach, you know, one to two classes, maybe, um, depending on if they're mild to moderate students, and you might do some pull out, you might do some push in. Um, and because our teachers are, are not general ed, they are intervention specialists, and all day long they are working with our students, they actually get to teach, and they actually get to be present to the children and watch those light bulbs go off, and they get to essentially provide them intervention all day long, and so you see the repetition, you see um, the the constant when you're laying that kind of foundation that you can see a lot of those um, those barriers broken down, and so I will say that our teachers are I would put them up against any teachers throughout the country because their passion is the reason that they are there and they choose to love the children first. And when the children are loved, we find that, you know, all of a sudden they start to believe in themselves and then they're starting to take some educational risks. And when we, then we see the social risks come out um, and they're in a place of where they have hope for the first time. Um, a lot of our schools, kids come to us and they're somewhat broken and they've maybe been in an educational setting where they haven't felt successful and that's huge for a child and so they sometimes will you know shut down or you know stop thinking that they can and there's there's a lot of power there and our teachers really love them first get to know who they are as people and as learners and then they challenge them and that's why our our whole you know, tagline is beyond education and beyond expectations, because we go beyond the classroom and your traditional education. And we definitely go, the teachers go beyond expectations and our students go beyond what we, what, you know, any of the doctors maybe would have told them. I have parents tell me all the time that, oh, this doctor said my child would, would need an augmentative form of communication or would never speak. And now the child's you know, speaking different languages. And we, I mean, the stories coming out of our, you know, the past 64 years with what we've been able to do on a child's journey is just nothing short of than a miracle. Absolutely. And so you mentioned um, participating in these state programs. Um, I'd imagine that with participation comes um, paperwork or comes additional requirements from the state as well mm -hmm. as, you know, political concerns. I know any, sort of any program that's that's drafted by a legislature could be taken away someday by a legislature and others. Mm -hmm. So I'm just sort of curious, like, how you interact with, with the public policy realm um, and how, how, how that sort of shapes what you are or are not able to do. Yeah, so – so like I said, I mean, when, when you said what would be the kind of biggest political risk, I mean, if these scholarships went away, it would be, it would be terrible for our financial model because there's not many of our families that can actually pay for the cost of these services because we're not just, yes, we have intervention specialists, but we also have 
you know, a BCBA on staff, an art therapist on staff, you know, a music therapist, two speech language pathologists, an occupational therapist. I mean, you have a lot of different services happening in-house, which makes our educational model um, a lot different and, and more expensive. So if those scholarships went away, it would it would be a major, major issue for us financially. Um, however, I'm, I'm not seeing that as part of what's what's happening right now. I mean, again, Ohio has been a pretty uh, politically, it's been a pretty uh, great state for choice in education. And I don't foresee these scholarships being something that right now is at all being talked about at the state right. level. Um, we have some advocates that we work with and some lobbyists and, um, you know, School Choice Ohio, I used to serve on their board and they're you know, they're great people and doing wonderful work in the political realm, and they are advocating for choice and for parent quality options. And, you know, I have stayed close with them. And so, again, I'm not at I'm not at a place where I think that we're at risk. That's great. And I imagine so having these dollars coming in others, the Julie Billiard School has become the Julie Billiard Schools, <laughs> as you mentioned. So you have a new campus opening, and it's my understanding that there are plans to open more campuses. So could you maybe uh, talk us through uh, the plans there? Yes. So we had a waiting list. Um, and when I came on as president, I was the first lay president after um, Sister Agnes Marie, who was there for um, over 30 years at our school. It's a tough and act to follow. Amazing. It's a very tough act to follow, very big shoes to fill, um, but she really laid the foundation so that, that we could expand. And um, we have, because of that waiting list, we decided to embark on a strategic planning process. We had some different partners help with some consulting work and some you know, strategic planning. And what we did in you know, the fall of 2017 was launch our first replicated school. And we started small with kindergarten, first and second grade. Um, we took our assistant principal from our Lynnhurst campus and asked him to be the principal down in Akron. And it was a fantastic opportunity and it was a fantastic year. Um, so we started the year with actually 14 kids, just like the sisters started with many years ago. Um, so I always said that, you know, God's providence. That's great. But we started with we started with 14 children. We're ending the year with 18 children. And like I said, Next year, we'll be adding third, fourth, and fifth grade, and we have over, we think we'll have probably over 50 kids next year. Um, I think we have like 42 registered, and so we will have that next year, and then the following year, we will add um, to grow to eighth grade, and we really want to continue to expand. Um, our overall plan calls for six schools across Northeast Ohio and for 700 kids with special needs across Northeast Ohio really have their needs met because of us. Um, I haven't, we haven't really put a timeline on when we can serve 700 kids because we have some go, no go criteria and different thresholds that we need to meet before we can expand. Um, but, you know, I'm getting calls all the time about, oh, we need one of these schools in our state. And, oh, I wish our church would, would be able to educate kids with autism or, you know, our kids with dyslexia have you know, aren't able to have their needs met at our parish school or this or that. And so it makes our kind of model so desirable and really should be part of what our church is doing and what we as a, as a Catholic meaning universal should be focused on. So, you know, I'm very, very confident in our model. 
Um, we're just doing very slow and thoughtful growth because of, you know, all the all the things that happen with Sure, teams. totally. <laughs> So now as you expand to these new areas, I'd be interested to know where you uh, find your students. So where where do you get your students from? And and also given the fact that they have to kind of navigate this, um, the the voucher programs or the the choice programs, like how do you help walk – how do you help walk their families through that process so that they're able to take advantage of it? Yeah, and the, the great question. And, you know, I wish I had a magic answer <laughs> to any of that. Um, because we have been there for 60, you know, 64 years at Lyndhurst, um, we we never really had to market. We never had to. People, people, people came to us because they knew of our reputation. They A lot of it was word of mouth. A lot of it was, you know, throughout time and, and that the area hospitals in the diagnostics were recommending our schools. And so we didn't really have to. So in Akron, um, this was a challenge was how do we find the parents that, you know, want a different choice or a different option for their child. Um, And so we did spend some time, you know, doing a market analysis. And what I will tell you is we weren't in, in boots on the ground in the community early enough. And there were also, anytime you do a brand new school, every school leader I've talked to that has launched a school has told me enrollment was low their first year because your parents aren't inherently going to take a risk on their child. And so I think we had some parents kind of on the sidelines, like watching, seeing what we did. And that's why I think numbers have improved this year. But you're exactly right that the scholarships are not known. If a parent is not extremely savvy or maybe in the kind of field that hears about this stuff, they don't know that they have options, that they have quality options. Um, So I know that, you know, some of the lobbyists really worked on being able to give a piece of paper at, at an IEP meeting to the parents to say, you have options. Here are scholarships that you have options of. Um, When we're out in the community, we have kind of a one pager we give to families that help them navigate how how to find a quality provider and how to become how you can actually uh, receive the state scholarships because it's not easy. So we we have factored in a little bit of educating the parents and journeying with them so that regardless of a child's ability to pay, they can attend our school if they need to. So now how did you, you – you mentioned briefly earlier um, having to uh, step into the shoes of a, a nun who had run the school for 30 years, which I do not in any way envy you for having to do that. But I, I'm curious about – so how, how did you get uh, involved? How did you decide to take that leap? Well, I actually started in the classroom at Julie Blair at school. Um, so I had already – fallen in love with the mission and fallen in love with the kids and our model and what we can do and how different it is from the public schools. I'd had, you know, experience in the public schools as well. And I believe in all types of education, but what we can do at Julie Blair schools is, is very different. And we can set up, you know, individualized curriculum for that child to meet their needs. And our environment truly does meet the child's needs. Um, and, and the, we fit the child instead of the child having to really fit into us. And so 
when I noticed that, I kind of just said yes to any opportunity if it meant helping these kids. So I started as a second grade teacher, um, and then I then I switched to kindergarten, and then I was the assistant principal and the director of special ed. And then when Sister Agnes Marie announced her retirement, um, the board had me do you know kind of a year of shadowing, and then with the hope that I would take over as um, president CEO. And then when we established the network in the spring of last year, um, I transitioned to be the president CEO of Julie Billiard Schools Network. And so as you look back on on this time period, what you've done, and you, and you had sort of mentioned some of these earlier moving into Akron and not, not getting out there early enough, but I'd love to know, like, for the educators out there, for the potential school leaders out there, if you look back on, like, lessons that you've learned, or if you could go back to that beginning stage and give yourself a piece of advice knowing what you know now, I, I wonder what, what advice would you give yourself? Um, <laughs> I would... Someone had said to me, you know, you're never going to have enough money, you're never going to have enough time, and you're never going to have enough help. And I kind of was like, oh, no, you know, we've met our benchmark for money. We've met our benchmark here. And, and, and I was very naive to think that, that this wasn't going to be a journey full of different barriers and different conflicts. Change is hard. I mean, educators know that change is hard. And and the what it does when you are really scaling an organization and changing that organization, you know, I wish looking back, I would have been a little bit more intentional about our communication. Um, and what I mean by that is we spent so much time intentionally transferring the culture that internally, I think things were were really good, but some of the communication with some of our greatest constituents, um, we we missed a little bit. And so if I if I could go back, I think I would have created more time for myself to be in some bigger conversations with different constituents and be more thoughtful about our communicating what we were doing and what the vision was for the future. Sure. Now, I, I have to put my bias out there as well. I already did my Catholic Homer bias, but my, my other bias is I'm, I'm trained as a social scientist. I'm a researcher. I want to know how things work. And so one way that we have to do that is to have some measurement, how we measure that what we're doing is what we think that we're doing. So I'd be curious, how do you all measure success? It is such a good question. And one of the things that we knew is that we had this history full of success, and I put success in quotes, um, but none of us could quantify why. So, you know, we had all these feel-good stories, and we knew we knew what people were getting, but we didn't really have metrics that could showcase over the years what we've done. So part of when we started to partner with the Drexel Fund, um, we they really helped us think think through what success looks like at Julie Billiard schools, because anyone will tell you that the metrics for measuring a child with a, you know, special learning need or a social need or possibly, you know, an anxiety disorder, it, it's really, really hard. And there really isn't a good metric out there. And so we started to really think if we're a whole child approach to education, we kind of need a whole child approach to success and, and how to measure it and, and really measure the children against themselves 
not against always, you know, what is typical in the public school and, and that curriculum. So, so we do have an academic curriculum. We do, you know, do the MAPS assessments and those are predictive assessments and they, they help kind of us figure out exactly where the child is within the curriculum. We also do, you know, parent surveys to understand how success looks from the parent's perspective. Um, you know, we, we have talked about doing kind of quality of life. We've talked, we do now have social assessments that we use. We do have behavior assessments that we use. We have speech assessments that we use. And so one of the biggest champions of kind of this area has been um, Dr. Tom Frazier, who's on our board of directors, and he is the chief science officer for Autism Speaks. Oh, wow. And we are, and we are so lucky to have him on our board, and we are so lucky to actually employ his wife as our BCBA. And she is very driven by data as well. And so this, this all kind of came together, and they really have created a different comprehensive model for what success looks like for a child with special needs. And we're really, really proud of it. And, you know, this is kind of the first year we're taking data and eventually we'll be able to aggregate it and compare it across the schools and across the network. And, you know, hopefully there would be other schools out there that might be able to adopt something like this so that we can get a really good, clear picture if we are serving children the way that we have set out to, to serve them. Well, that's fantastic. And, you know, I think there's something interesting that I, I would be interested to get your thoughts on, on specifically the role that faith plays. I mean, something that sets your schools apart is, is the role that, that faith plays in undergirding all of it. And, and I, part of me wonders, again, as someone who used to be a teacher who, who encounters these things, is that especially when it comes to students with special needs, sort of the way that the world judges them. Mm-hmm. The questions that are asked are sort of, oh, will they be able to get a job or will they be able to be mainstreamed into a classroom? But it seems to me that faith and, and a broad number of faith traditions um, are much more concerned about what what type of person we are and mm-hmm. how we treat other people and how we view the world. And it seems to me many of the students that I encountered, some with profound special needs, on the, they were on the autism spectrum or they had Down syndrome others. When I, I, I sort of joke with folks, they are demonstrably better people than I am. They oh, are, absolutely. They're, they're, <laughs> they're kinder. They are, they, mm-hmm. they are much more positive. I mean, there's they, so many things. And so I wonder... But, but part of that, it's, it's difficult to disentangle from a sort of faith perspective of sort of these are the things that human beings are supposed to be, of kind to one another and, and, and loving, et cetera, and, and these children are the absolute epitome of that. But I just wonder, like, how y'all think through that sort of maybe I'm crazy in, for thinking that or, or, or that, that, that that isn't a connection that's made between that, but I, I would love to know sort of how you think about that. No, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. I mean, I think I learn daily. Um, I'm, I'm humbled daily by our kids, but I learn daily from them. I learn from them because of their purity of faith, that they understand that God is love and God loves them. And, you know, what better message and what better <laughs> life lesson is that? Um, oftentimes they kind of stop me in my tracks from being very much, you know, we're supposed to be forward thinking and we're supposed to be these visionaries and we're supposed to be leading. And so I get really kind of wrapped up in that. And the the students really ground me and they really help me remember that it's in the moments that we have opportunities to love one another and treat one another differently. Um, And, you know, 
our saying, you know, St. Julie always said, God is good all the time. And so every morning when we do announcements, our principal will say, God is good. And the kids respond all the time. And throughout the school day, throughout the school year, they're finding God's goodness in one another. And they actually have to, you know, write it down when they saw God's goodness alive in someone else. And, and they're so much, they are, they're so much better at it. I know, right? This is so, yes. But then just we are as people. And I, I still attribute it to when they walk through that front door of our school, they know they are one of God's children and whoever God is to them or what, whatever, you know, faith tradition they have, they know they are loved and they know they are part of our school and they're part of something bigger than themselves. And I think they are grateful. I think they have found hope. And I think that they are very happy children that feel loved and, and God's love manifested in us is, is extremely is extremely, um, you know, amazing. And it is alive and, and kids see it differently than we do as adults. And it's, it's just very humbling. For sure. (laughs) I want to be like them. No, totally. (laughs) That makes two of us. And I have to say, there's no other place I would rather end this than on that note. So Lanny Davis Frecker, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome, and thank you for um, wanting to share the word and the good news about Julie Billiard Schools. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. God bless. So I hope everybody enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I know uh, we we went on a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a tear there at the end. Um, as you can probably tell, uh, educating students with special needs uh, is something that is a passion of mine, and honestly, just uh, treating special uh, it, people with special needs, children with special needs, adults with special needs better is something that I think that our uh, our society needs to do. Um, so hearing from someone who works day in, day out with students with special needs and, and, and just the great gifts that they are in her life, I think is something that even if you're not interested in school choice or even if you're not interested in those things, really sort of reflecting on what that means and how we talk about special education in America, how we talk about programs that are designed to help students with special needs, I think would make us all better people, better policy analysts, better researchers, et cetera. If we, we really come to respect and and understand uh, these fellow members of our community. Lots of interesting stuff, too, talking about scaling up and intersecting with public policy. So I think there was, there was a lot to chew on in that podcast that I will be thinking about for a very long time. Um, if you all need more stuff to think about, what you should do is subscribe to our podcast. Um, if you leave reviews, that's even better. But you know what? Even this week, I'm just going to ask just subscribe to the podcast. We put out tons of great content on here, not just not just about cool schools, though we do put out our fair share of those, um, but talk about recent developments in school choice, cutting-edge research that either our team is doing or other researchers are doing that we can sort of bring in and interview for it. Folks are usually game for that, which we appreciate, but lots of great content for that. If listening is not your thing, I get it. It's not necessarily what everybody's into. You can sign up for our email list. You can get uh, the written word, which I certainly appreciate as one who generates many of them. Um, But sign up for our email list. Um, Lots of great content that's available there, too. And you can kind of manage what type of stuff you're interested in. And we will cater directly to you, dear listener, the types of information that you want. As always... I love to know more about cool schools. I don't have the uh, the ability to be in every city and every state, 
some of the schools that we've been profiling recently are folks who've listened to the podcast and sent me an email and said, hey, you really need to check out this school. They're doing something interesting. Please feel free to do that. Give me a tweet at MQ underscore McShane. Shoot me an email. Send it to somebody you know. Actually, really send it to anybody at EdChoice. Maybe it'll just be an interesting thing. I'll get an email. I have no idea why I got this email, but this school sounds kind of cool, and that'll be like our vetting process. Um, but thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank <laughs> you.